When Billie Jean King was just 12 years old, she picked up a tennis racket for the first time and decided that she wanted to be the number one player in the world. And as you know, to fast forward to the end of the story, that is exactly what she did. With 39 Grand Slam career titles to her name, she's considered the mother of modern sports. She didn't just change tennis, she changed all sports for all people. Which, by the way, was the plan from the beginning. It was another thing she looked around again at 12 years old and decided. I was just daydreaming one day and realized that everybody who played tennis wore white shoes and white clothes, played with white balls, and everybody who played was white. And I asked myself, where is everybody else? So that was my moment that I dedicate the rest of my life to fighting for equality. Everything I've done will go back to that moment, that epiphany at 12 years old. Along the way, the fight for equality led her to the famed Battle of the Sexes. That was her 1973 tennis match against Bobby Riggs. An estimated 50 million people worldwide watched Billie Jean King win that day. And it's considered a milestone in terms of the public's acceptance of female athletes and a victory for the women's rights movement in general. Today, at 77 years old, Billie Jean King remains a fierce advocate for gender equality, and she's just published an autobiography. That is called All In, and it's out now. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with Glad, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with Billie Jean King. So just as we often say how much has changed for queer people in the last 50 years, your book is a reminder that that statement is also true for women. In your case, being a woman and a professional tennis player wasn't even a career path that existed. So when you were starting out, how were you thinking about what was possible for a career in tennis? Well, I played team sports as a child first, and a lot of people may or may not know my younger brother, Randy Moffat. Moffat's our birth name, became a major league baseball player. So sports is in our blood. My dad was a good athlete. My mother was a good athlete. So Susan Williams in fifth grade asked me if I wanted to play tennis. And I said, what's tennis? I thought I probably wouldn't play because she played at a country club. And my dad's a firefighter. I said, well, this isn't in my realm of thinking. I also played on a softball team. And she told the coach she'd taken me out to play tennis. And she said, oh, they give free instruction here on Tuesdays with Clyde Walker. and It's free coaching. Whoa. I go out to have my first session with Clyde. And at the end of it, I knew I wanted to be the number one tennis player in the world. But then it was amateur. And I didn't like that because I grew up around pro sports. Pro meant you're really good at what you did. And amateur means it was a hobby. So one of my first things I wanted was to change the sport as far as being a professional sport. There were none, really no options as a child for girls. And today, there's still many more options for boys. What really happened, though, what really changed my life, my epiphany, was when I was 12. I was just daydreaming one day and realized that everybody who played tennis wore white shoes and white clothes, played with white balls, and everybody who played was white. And I asked myself, where is everybody else? Where is everyone else? So that was my moment that I dedicate the rest of my life to fighting for equality for everyone. Everything I've done We'll go back to that moment, that epiphany at 12 years old. And you know, a few short years after that, at 17 years old, 
you go on to win Wimbledon with your partner, Karen Hans. And you are the youngest tennis team to ever win Wimbledon in the doubles. We still hold that. It, it's Karen Hans, actually, is how she oh, says Hans. it. But I love the way you say it. I like that. It's kind of more grand, you know? It's the gay oh, podcast. Oh, totally. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. I like it. <laughs> oh, I love this story, though, because after you come back from winning Wimbledon at 17, rather than going to train full-time like you would today, you go to college and you live at home. And this is the part I was particularly fascinated by. You get a couple part-time jobs, including one as a locker room attendant where you make $1.15 an hour to full towels. I don't know if my ego could handle that high and low of winning Wimbledon and then being paid $1.15. Like what was going through your mind at that point? My parents didn't care if we're any good. They always said your health and education is the two most important things. And so we were, I think, trying to please mom and dad a lot here. For Randy going to college, he would be seen by the scouts. That does not happen in a girl's world. (laughs) It's like, what? And no one even noticed. So it was just kind of like the way the world worked at that point for you. Yeah, it does work that way. It still does a lot in a lot of ways. A dominant group knows very little about non-dominant groups. And this is where our LGBTQ plus community comes in, in that the more you know someone, the better you know someone, usually the more you like them, you feel comfortable with them. But first, we have to feel comfortable in our own skin, I think. The more comfortable we are when we talk to somebody, I think helps put people at ease. Of course, I didn't probably realize this at a younger age. I think it really helps. Like, it's just a matter of fact. Going off of that, I didn't realize until reading your book what a long process it was for you to become comfortable talking about it. You write that you get a churning in your gut when you have to talk about being a lesbian. Is that still true today? No, I wouldn't say so much now. No. Occasionally, I'll get a, from the past, I'll get a gut reaction. But I also think it depends on the audience you're around, that you can kind of size up things very quickly. So how long did that churning last in your stomach? I wasn't comfortable until I was 51. That's a long haul. I felt very straight as a young person, though. I had no idea. I mean, I still like men's bodies. Probably that's who I'm going to look at when someone walks in the room. That's the emotional stuff for me. And I like being a gay woman because I've talked to my friends. I love the word gay because it means happy. And I like happy, happy, happy. And lesbian is okay, but I don't know. I don't get the same fun from that word that I get from being a gay woman. I just like it because it just feels happy. And I like, I think we should be happy and can be happy. I don't know. It just feels good to me. Yeah, it's fun. You know, if you weren't outed back in 1981, putting yourself back in that mindset and time period, if you weren't outed, are you able to say or predict when you might have come out? I have no idea. But if you set the scene in the 70s, no one had come out yet. Glenn Burke was a Dodger. He was gay. The media knew it, but never wrote about it. I think I was the first one that was outed in 81. And I told the truth, which my PR people did not. My lawyer did not want me to say. And I said, no, I'm going to tell the truth. Oh, my God. It was just a knockdown, drag out, fight over the phone. And I mean, it just was hours and hours and hours. And I just said, no, you know, the media has been good to me through the years. I was very good with the media. I always gave them time had fun with them. I love writers, spent a lot of time with them. I said, you know what? They've always been good to me. Just say it like it is. Tell the truth. We're going to do this. And then they did a rehabilitation trying to keep Larry and me together. And Larry and I did try. I mean, it's a joke. You cannot believe in today's society, and at least the situation I'm in, that this ever happened. It's like a bad dream. And yet I lived it day after day. And when we started the tour, because I was chosen as the leader, 
and I happened to be the number one player around that time too, and I embraced the leadership role, I was told if I talk about anything that we wouldn't have a tour. So this wasn't just about me. This is, this is about a lot more than just me. You mentioned Sally Ride in the book, the astronaut who only came out in her obituary. Uh-huh. Do you think that that could have been how you did it as well? No, I would have done it before. I No, I would have done it. No, I was trying to figure that out. No, I wanted to come out because I thought it's my truth. It's the right thing to do. And also, it's also part of equality. My, my 12-year-old epiphany that everyone, all of us, each human being needs to be respected and loved for who they are and to be comfortable in their own skin. Oh, my. I'm, I was totally into all that thinking about it. How, you know, how, how is this going to happen eventually? How, how can I make this happen? How can I? Also, when you can be your authentic self, you know you've arrived. You can be your full self. You can do your best at work. I mean, one by one, we just have to keep fighting and have respect for ourselves, respect for others. Every time I meet a person, I always remind myself to have total respect for them until they, you know, over time, I have a different opinion. But I always start with a, with a blank piece of paper. So I don't know. I think it's really important to respect it. And if people aren't like ourselves, that's fine. I think as long as somebody's authentic, great. I know that opening up about, you know, one's identity is different than like sharing about a relationship. But I just bring that up because you've been with your partner, Alana Kloss, for over 40 years, but you didn't publicly acknowledge a relationship until you'd been dating for 27 years. So like, even though people knew you were gay, did you feel like apprehension about sharing that? No, the challenge, well, yes and no. The challenge has been, had been, we had to hide for so long. It was such a habit. Like I would go give a speech. I go, well, I want to acknowledge you. And she says, don't. So it became a habit. I still catch myself. I go, my God, I mean, what am I doing? It's amazing how we got in this habit of hiding. And, and that happens, you know, other, other players on the tour are in the same situation. I mean, Martina Navratilova came to me right after I was outed in May of 81. She came to me during Wimbledon, which is around June, July of 81 and said, this guy at the Daily News is going to out me. What should I do? I always remember saying, well, if you can, and if you feel comfortable enough, you need to control the message. I think it's better if you can come out on your own terms. With you being outed, you know, your sexuality being made public without your consent, it's not dissimilar to when your abortion was made public, again, without your knowledge or consent. Yes, totally. Yeah, those two big events, did it make you feel like every private moment in your life would eventually be made public? Oh, yeah. I felt very naked and vulnerable. And it's a horrible feeling. And I know a lot of people out there, I'm sure, have felt this themselves because everybody's journey is unique and difficult. I don't think anyone ever has an easy journey in life. I think we just have to stay happy and gay, and, and, but, but, but also be truthful and live and feel whatever we're feeling is okay. But I I would not say it's been easy. I think if you choose to be a pro athlete, it's going to be more public. That's the deal. That's the downside probably, I guess. And you you were so comfortable for your entire life talking about, you know, gender equality and women's issues. Did it take a while to become comfortable talking about LGBTQ plus issues? I think it took longer. I had to learn a lot more too. I needed to learn about others. The one thing that as a woman that, I mean, you even alluded to it in the question is that when a woman does something that she's only leading for women, and I never feel that way. I grew up with a brother. I, my dad was fantastic. He believed in me as much as my brother, which was really important 
to all the men out there who have daughters, if you will believe in her as much as your son, you're going to be ahead of the game. Because usually the men are our first hero anyway. Our mothers eventually, I think, become our sheroes. I think it's the opposite for boys. I think boys probably would go to their mother first. But I've listened to stories with, with gay men. I've noticed, I think they go to their mother faster than their dad. That's interesting. I could be out to lunch. I don't know. I feel like every time I've listened, a lot of times it's, my mother was really great. I mean, in my one example on case study, I don't disagree. Did you do a case study? Yours, you mean? Just for my life, yeah. <laughs> well, how did, how, well, what, who did you tell first? Do you have two parents? I have a mom and a dad. I told them at the same time. Oh, that's great. Just because I didn't want one to have to have a secret. But I mean, I don't talk about this on the podcast a lot, but I probably talk to my mom, you know, every day. <laughs> right. That's, here we go. <laughs> See, I, that's what I found with gay guys. I, I've noticed that they feel like a little more breathing room with their moms than they do their dads for some reason. I think relationships sometimes with the same gender, just the way we brought up in cult- culturally. I'm not saying it would be real otherwise if it were different culturally, but I know I have all these questions and I have no answers. <laughs> but I love that you say that because particularly around gender and sexuality, I think that that's okay. And for example, in the book, you write about Renee Richards, the tennis player, and you didn't know a lot about being trans back then, but you still let her play. And we welcomed her, although it took a little bit of effort. She was on the tour back in 77. I think we're, women's tennis was the first to have a transgender person in sports. And the women were like up in arms. Well, we can't have her. Look at the locker room. It's going to be terrible. Blah, 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 blah. And I had, this, I had this ongoing thing with the women. I started to realize if I can just go on little bit, bitty, bitty parts, then I had a chance. If I, if I brought too big an idea, they couldn't handle it. But I said, well, why don't we just take a breath and a beat and let's just see so and then I called Renee and I listened to her for four hours. And then I went to doctors and asked their opinions. Oh, and then there was a ruling that she is a transgender woman and she should be allowed to play. And I went to the women and I said, you know what? She's going to play no matter what. But I just think, uh, how about if we give her two weeks? I said, okay, we'll try that for two weeks. Within two days, they're coming up to you. She's the greatest. She's so nice. She's so smart. Oh my God. I'm so glad she's on the tour. So. It's amazing how we get fearful of something that we don't know anything about. You know, with the Olympics or the Battle of the Sexes match or even like Wimbledon, there was so much pressure to play these, to win, to advance to the next round. But you also got in the sport because you enjoyed it. At that level, are you still like enjoying it? Is it still fun? I think I have this saying, pressure is a privilege. I started this that saying, if anybody ever hears it, I kind of came up with that one. When Lindsay Davenport was at Fed Cup, she was at the World at the World Cup of Women's Tennis. She said, "Help! I've got to play this player. I hate playing her." You know, I, and I just kind of like yelled at her. Pressure's a privilege. And I went, "Oh, I'm going to hold on to those. I like this." She's okay, and then she went and won the match. So she was always really happy about that. But that's where that—that's how that it just came out of my brain, just like instantaneously, and I liked it. But you know, as a child, my brother and I like pressure. But I think it's because my parents gave us time and space. They did not care for any good. Like they didn't ask us, did you win? You know how many parents go, did you win? Well, that's not a good way to start with the kid. <laughs> don't, don't say, did you win? They'll tell you how they did, believe me, whether they get a good grade or whether, you know, in sports or whatever. But Randy and I are so, we just loved 
what we did. We still we just I just loved hitting a tennis ball. And I didn't I didn't hit a tennis ball probably for 25 years. I've had a lot of knee operations, shoulder, and I started playing last October. I said to Alana, would you because Alana was the number one player in the world uh, in doubles, number one South African. Anybody that's come from South Africa, that's always very interesting. And she's Jewish. So I think she always felt very connected to freedom. So anyway, she still plays a lot. Lana still plays a lot. She plays great. She, I think she's playing better now than when she played on the tour almost. So anyway, I said, would you hit the ball with me one day? And we, we've been hitting ever since. In fact, we're going to hit later today, probably. So I love to hit the ball. I love the magic of feeling the ball against the strings. I love the way you shape time and space. It's like dance to me, although I can't dance anymore because I go one one step to the right, one step to the left. I guess that's a little start to dance. So at 77, you still love tennis. Oh, uh, I always loved it. Well, I, there's no way I could have gotten through all the pressures on and off the court if I hadn't loved it. I love it. I love hitting the ball. I love playing sports, but I realized the first day I played tennis, that's what I realized. I played shortstop in softball. I played other sports. I can hit 100 balls in five to 10 minutes and touch the ball. How many times do you think you touch the ball when you play baseball or softball? You, don't, you hardly you touch it, what, five times if you're shortstop in a game? Five times in tennis, I can hit 100 in the same amount of time, or 500, actually, if, if it's baseball. So, And I love all these sports. But I'm just telling you what tennis has done for me. And they did research and tennis has come out number one as far as the healthiest. It's because you use all of yourself. You use your upper and lower bodies. And during COVID, we have 4 million new people because of social distancing you can do with it as well on each side of the net. Anyway, I am so happy. The one thing I have, let, I have not done is I thought during COVID I would practice the piano again because that's my first love back as a kid didn't I don't have it as far as being really good I have not done that but I've, I've actually started to take photos just from the apartment in New York because we have a nice view but is photography like this next phase of your life like something you're gonna be trying I don't know I like the moon and the sun so much because I know this is corny I don't care because I like love and is that all of us look at the same moon and sun every day so I feel very connected to people when I look at them. I think that corny is a great place to leave it. I really enjoyed this. So thank you so much, Billy Jean. Yeah, totally. I would much rather interview you, actually. It'd be interesting. <laughs> we can turn it around. <laughs> you, you impress me. And that was Billie Jean King. Her new book is out now, and it's called All In. And then stay tuned for next week, because we will be back with Daryl Stevens, the star of Noah's Ark. We're living in the era of people who are undetectable. And when I was 32, that was not a thing. And when I was 22, we were terrified. We were wearing three condoms, right? Like, like you didn't touch anything or anybody without a condom. It was terrifying at that age. So that's next Tuesday. If you've not yet subscribed, please do so so you do not miss it. And then as always, if you enjoyed this interview, please help us spread the word on social media. Send a tweet, an Insta story, do a Facebook post. All of those things are the number one way you can help our show continue to grow and continue making new episodes every week. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week.